where we're making our way through this amazing letter. And as we get ready to unpack some of those verses that we just read, um, I want to ask you a question. Sometimes this question is asked at dinner parties or maybe in small group settings as people are getting to know one another. But here's the question. If you could interview anyone from history, who would you want to meet? I find this a fascinating way to, to get to know people and Perhaps you might answer that you want to meet one of the great writers of the past, maybe Jane Austen or Dostoevsky or one of those uh, famous people, Shakespeare. Or maybe it's one of the, the great athletes from the past, Joe DiMaggio or Jesse Owens or Muhammad Ali. Who would you want to meet? Oftentimes I hear the answer, people want to meet some political leaders from the past, Winston Churchill, Abraham Lincoln, maybe even Martin Luther King Jr., who would you want to interview if you had an opportunity to sit down and interview? When I ask this question, I throw in a little caveat, maybe because I'm a pastor, and I know that what people might say would be kind of the, the right answer for the pastor to hear, but I would say if you could interview anyone from history apart from Jesus, who would you want to interview? Well, when the answer or the conversation turns back and they ask me that same question, without a doubt, my answer would be, I would want to interview the Apostle Paul. Sometimes they're like, that's cheating. He's close to Jesus. I'm like, I know, but that's who I want to interview. Paul was an amazing man. The letter we're reading and studying right now was written from prison. And this was one of the, the many imprisonments that he himself faced. This man was one of the leading intellectual figures in the history of Christianity. Perhaps no other person has had as much written about him and as much written about his, his writings as the Apostle Paul. He was a brilliant thinker. And outside of Christ, he has had the most impact on Christianity. But he was also a man who loved deeply. And we're going to see that today in the passage we're looking at. But I just want to reference one place in the book of Corinthians where he talks about some of his own experience. And he speaks about being involved in far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? If I may boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. I read something like that, I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I would love to interview this man just to hear some of all that he went through after he became a Christian. In some ways, he had a fascinating life, planting churches across the Roman Empire. But in many ways, his life became much more difficult once he became a follower of Jesus. And so as I mentioned, we're reading this letter from the Philippians that he's writing uh, 10 years after he helped establish the church in this Roman colony. And we're going to unpack that today as we hear some of the words that he has to say. And so I want to just call our study today The Fellowship of the Gospel. And you're going to see why I titled it that way as we unpack this. And so let's pause for just a moment and ask God to be the one who teaches us and to open our hearts to understand exactly what he wants us to know today. So let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your servant, the Apostle Paul, this man who was once an enemy of Jesus and his people, who was a persecutor and oversaw the first execution of a Christian, now has been delivered from that life and is sitting in prison. And we get to read his words today. Thank you that this letter has become for us what we call the Word of God. Your words to us, first spoken by Paul to these followers of Jesus living in Philippi. Help us to kind of enter their world, to understand what was going on, and to apply that to our lives this day as we seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. This is how he begins the section we're going to look at in verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. For Paul, God was not just a philosophy or an interesting topic of conversation. As I mentioned, he was was a persecutor of the early Jesus movement, and he thought in his conception of God, he was doing what God wanted. Can you imagine having a conception of God where he wants you to go around murdering other people? But that's what he was. He was in many ways a religious terrorist until he became a follower of Jesus. And when he met the resurrected Jesus, he had to rethink everything from the ground up, including who this creator God was that has now made himself known in the person of Jesus. And so when he says, I I thank my God, he's just not being kind of religious and saying something that a religious person might say. For him, this was a lived reality. His God had become real for him in the person of Jesus, pouring grace upon grace to him, commissioning him to be an ambassador to the Roman Empire. And so as we unpack what we're going to see today, let me just start off with this key thought, and and we're going to see this unfold for us as as we look at this passage. It can be truly said that Christianity is about a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I mean, after all, Paul spoke about my God. But even though it is a personal relationship, it is not a private relationship because it immerses us in the fellowship of the gospel with other believers. And so let's unpack a little bit more of what he says. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. Here he mentions prayer three different times, prayer twice by the word and his, his notion of giving thanks. And I'm using the English Standard Version here, and it tries to be as literal as it can in following the Greek, and sometimes the, the structure is a little bit wooden for us. So let me just borrow from the NIV for a moment. It's, it flows much more smoothly here. It says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Paul is saying, whenever you cross my mind, my thoughts immediately go to God, and I pray with great joy for you all. Here he raises the theme of joy. It's going to be repeated some 16 times in these four chapters we're going to study. Many people call Philippians the, the book of joy in the New Testament, and rightfully so. Paul is thanking God, his God, with great joy for these Philippian believers, and he gives us the reason. Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I have that word partnership highlighted for us. It's an interesting word. In the original language, and you may have heard this, I'm not trying trying to impress you with uh, my knowledge of Greek. It's not that great, believe me. But it's the word koinonia, and many Christians know this word. It's a word that is oftentimes translated as fellowship, Sometimes churches are named like Koinonia Fellowship or Koinonia Bible Church or something like that. They'll take this word from the New Testament. And it has behind it this idea of a partnership 
which is the way my translation translates it. It can be thought of as a participation, an association, or communion with others, or a fellowship, if you use kind of the old English language of that. I don't like the word fellowship for the translation of this because for many people who follow Jesus today, fellowship means, hey, we get together and eat food. And that's not a bad thing, and we do have fellowship with one another. But the Greek word actually goes much more deep than that. It speaks of a partnership. If you and I, in that day, were going to, let's say, buy a boat or, or open a little place of business, we would enter into a koinonia with one another, an intentional partnership, a business relationship to accomplish certain purposes. And so when we think about this, I'm just going to use this illustration from The Lord of the Rings. You know the story of the Lord of the Rings as it opens up in the Fellowship of the Ring where there's this ring of power that the evil Lord Sauron had used to control the peoples of Middle-earth and he had lost it in battle and it makes its way to this hobbit, an unassuming hobbit um, named Frodo. And as it comes to light that he has it, Elrond, the uh, leader of the elvish people, summons the peoples of Middle-earth, and their leaders come together, the dwarfs and the elves, and, and the humans come together to determine together what they're going to do with this. And it's determined that it must be destroyed. It cannot be yielded themselves or wielded themselves because the power corrupts, so they have to have this ring destroyed. That's the only way they hope, they hope or can hope to have any power over evil itself. And so they form this fellowship of the ring, this unlikely group of elves and men and dwarves and, and they're designated as the fellowship of the ring. They, they're entering into this partnership together with a mission to destroy this ring of power. So when Paul gives great joyous prayers because of these Philippian believers, he's doing it because of their partnership or their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. You see, these Philippian saints had entered into the fellowship of the gospel with Paul with the mission of spreading the good news about the world's true Lord and Savior. And so he's thinking about them and he's praying with great joy because of their faithfulness. I'm reminded of what the Apostle John wrote. And he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And certainly Paul knows that joy as he thinks about the Philippians. But it's not simply that they're walking in the truth. They're still contending for the truth. They're still engaged in the spreading of the gospel. And so as Paul writes from prison, thinking about how they are still willing to associate with him after others have turned away, he is overwhelmed with joy. Paul has already been in prison at this point, we think, for about two years as he's waiting to hear whether or not he's going to be set free or whether he's going to be executed. We're going to look at that a little bit later in chapter 1 as he kind of wrestles with what's going to happen to him. But at this point, the Philippians are still engaged. They're still sending Paul support so he can continue preaching the gospel to those that come and see him, to the Roman guards that he's chained to, but also so they can have food to eat. And so he's thankful about, uh, about them. You may have noticed when we read the passage this morning that it begins by the words, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Timothy is, is Paul's kind of right-hand man. And he wasn't in prison at the time, but he was there ministering with Paul, helping him in the work of the gospel. But even Timothy would feel the pressure of being associated with Paul. And he would later write a letter to Timothy with these words. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. 
but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. That's quite remarkable, isn't it? Why would Timothy, or even the Philippians, be embarrassed about Paul's chains? Well, on the one hand, you're saying you learned the gospel from this man who told you that someone came back from the dead who's now the world's true king, and he's sitting in prison? I mean, how does that compute? How does that work? But also, with that embarrassment, might be the association that if you're made known that you're an associate with Paul, that you're one of his partners, that you're in fellowship with him to spread this message about the gospel, what happened to him might happen to you. After all, they're living in the middle of a Roman colony, of Philippi, where people go around saying things like, Caesar is Lord and Savior of the world. And you're saying Jesus is? So Paul's writing from prison. He's very thankful for these folks. And as he thinks about their situation, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says this in verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What amazing words. I've had conversations with people about this book of Philippians. Uh, Sometimes I'm told that this is one of the verses that they've memorized. It's become such a comfort to them. And So let's just note for a moment how this should sound a note of encouragement for us. And to do so, let's think about how that gospel started in the city of Philippi. If we go to the book of uh, Acts, chapter 16, we pick up the narration there where Luke... One of the companions of Paul tells us these words. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river. He's already gone to Philippi. He's, he's wanting to preach the gospel there. The, the Sabbath day comes, and so they go outside the city gate to the river where we expect the, expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. And one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. Here's this woman, Lydia, from Thyatira. She she now resides in the city of Philippi. She's there with some friends of hers, and they are at this river, and they are praying, and and here we're told that she was a a worshiper of God. What does that mean, by the way? This is a kind of a customary way of talking about someone who is not a part of the, the Jewish faith or the Christian faith, who nevertheless has some sort of reverence for God, some sort of reverence for the the Creator, and they don't know yet about the good news of Jesus. And so she's there praying to the Creator and her understanding of this Creator, and here comes Paul and Luke and some of his traveling team of, of partners in the Gospel, the Fellowship of the Gospel, and he begins telling her about the Lord Jesus. And then this is what Luke tells us. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, and she and the members of her household were baptized. Here's the very beginning of the work of God, not just simply in Philippi, but in this woman named Lydia. And so when she heard those words in Paul's letter, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. What an encouragement that must have been to her. through her struggles and, and, and her trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, to hear the Apostle Paul say, I'm confident that the one who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. 
we think about the concept of salvation, as we see in the book of Revelation, especially in chapter 7, where there's this great multitude that no one can number before the throne of God. They're crying out in a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We know that salvation is God's possession. This is something that he grants. This is something that he bestows on people. And here in the city of Philippi, he's already begun this work in their lives, this gift of salvation and opening the heart of Lydia, opening the heart of the Philippian jailer and, and seeing this church come together. And so as we think about this work of God that he works in us and brings to completion, there's actually a couple different ways I think that we can think about this, or three different aspects of this gift of salvation that we're given. First of all is the past aspect where we can say that we have been saved. I have that wonderful verse in I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2 that says, by grace you have been saved. See, when you place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he brings into this state of salvation, this relationship and communion with him, where he bestows on you eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. And so you realize that you've been saved from the penalty of sin, which is death, spiritual death, a, a, a separation from God. We've been saved by that. But there's also a way that we can talk about present tense being saved. For example, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. What is he talking about here? As they follow the Lord Jesus Christ and learn to put themselves and their desires um, to death and, and to live for new desires in Christ, they're being freed from the, the power of sin in their life. So there's a very real sense in which we can say that we are being saved. But there's also a future tense we can speak about as well. For example, in the book of Acts, the disciples say, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Here are people who had already been saved and are being saved and can confidently state, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. These people have experienced freedom from the penalty of sin and experiencing power from the presence of uh, power of sin, now look forward to that day when we'll be free completely from the presence of sin. Past, present, future. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. And so that's what he talks about here. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So my friends, when I said just a few moments ago that this should bring us encouragement, it happens when we think of it in personal terms. He who began a good work in me will carry it on to completion. We just sung about that and completely done. To put it another way, in kind of our current lingo, God's got you. God's got you. Dear follower of Jesus, God has got you. Hear these words of Jesus himself. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. My friends, if you've confessed your sins and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are secure. God's got you. Jesus has you in his hand, and the Father has his hands around the hands of Jesus. And you are secure. What he began in you, he will carry it on to the day of completion. I love what one pastor by the name of Paul Walsh, Walsh said. I have 
given God countless reasons not to love me, and not one of them has been strong enough to change him. Isn't that amazing? So Paul is confident. He's sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. What's interesting is that word you, which is singular in our English translations, is plural in the original language. And so if we had a Texas translation or a Texan translation, it might say this, I'm confident that he who began a good work in y'all, meaning not just you individually, but y'all as a church, as a, as a community of faith, as he thinks about these Philippians and their partnership with them, he's convinced that God is going to continue that work until it's completed. He's going to say later on, we're going to look at this verse later on, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ to believe in him. And there's that singular word in English, but it's, it's plural in the original Greek. It's been granted to y'all, to the church, to believe in him. Which, of course, makes us think of those beautiful words of Jesus when he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What's your mental picture of this when these words come into your mind? I confess to you that for a number of years, my, my picture was of, of the church, and you have all these powers of darkness coming at it and attacking it. But that's actually the inverse of the picture. <laughs> the picture is of this fortress surrounded by gates called hell. And the church is, is attacking, <laughs> is ransacking those powers of hell. And those powers of hell will not be able to stand against it. How does John put it in the book of Revelation? They conquered him by the word of their testimony and by the blood of Christ. They pro proclaim the goodness of God and what he has done in Jesus and what he has done in them. They conquer. Think about these beautiful words from the poem Samuel Stone. We sing this song sometimes here at Mercy Hill. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for, for her life he died. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those who hate her and false sons in her pale, against a foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. Listen to how this poem ends. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore, till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. We just actually sung about this a while ago, too. How our eyes long to see Jesus on that final day. And so he tells them, I'm sure of this, he who began a good work in you, whether you think of that as you individually or, or as you as the church at Philippi, or the church here in Bryan College Station, named Mercy Hill. He's confident that God who begins a good work is the one who will finish it. Just think about these people. This small little church in Philippi, living in the middle of a, of a hostile culture where they're feeling the heat of what it means to follow Jesus. How did God bring about that work that can be said to continue to that. Just think about this. If, if they had never partnered with the Apostle Paul, we would never have this letter of Philippians that we're, we're meriting in this semester. How many people have been encouraged by some of the great 
sayings from this letter. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How many people have found comfort in, in Paul's instructions to not be anxious, but in prayer petition? Pray about everything. Tell God what you need. And in doing so, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Over and over again through this letter, we're going to see some of these amazing verses. That's some of the good work that God had begun in them, and because of this partnership in the gospel, we get to benefit from 2,000 years later. And it's going to be completed at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hear an echo of this in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians just down the road from Philippi. He speaks of when he, that is Jesus, comes to be, I'm sorry, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believed. Picking up this language of that day, the day of the Lord coming and applying it. We've begun singing this hymn. It's called the Hymn of Heaven here at Mercy Hill Church. and It begins by saying, there will be a day, that phrase day, when all will bow before him. There will be a day when death will be no more, standing face to face with Christ who rose again. Holy, holy is the Lord. There will be a day when what God has begun in you, what he began in that church in Philippi, what he's begun in us, he will carry it on to the day it's completed in Christ Jesus. And Paul goes on in verse 7 and says this, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. That word feel is a word that really describes a mindset. It's right for me to think this way. It's right for me to to have these kind of emotional responses as I think about you because I hold you in my heart. What would it be like to receive a letter from Jesus' right-hand man to the Roman Empire and he says, I'm thinking about you and I'm holding you in my heart? What encouragement that must be. And he gives the reason why. He says, for you are all, all partakers with me of grace. And there's that word partakers, which is the same word essentially as what we saw earlier in verse 5 when he talked about partners. It just has the prefix with on it. You are with me partners, is kind of what it says in Greek. You're partners with me in the gospel, or in, the, in grace, he says, literally. What does that mean? If we translate it, you are partakers with me of grace, we can in one sense understand that we are all receivers of the same grace that's given to people. But he says something much more specific that is kind of obscured a little bit in this English translation. You are partners with me in grace or or of grace. What does he mean? He says, we lock arms together. While I'm in prison, while you're out there, we are helping to advance the gospel so that grace comes to more and more people. In fact, he will say something very similar to that to the Corinthians. He says, the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause... um, may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. (laughs) This is why he's holding these Philippian Christians in his heart. They are partners with him in grace. But he also says, you're partners with me in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Literally, you're partners with me in my chains. You have remembered me. Your communion with me is as if you were in chains with me. And he thanks them for that. He holds them in their heart for that. But also in the defense and the confirmation or the establishment of the gospel. Paul's defense will come, hopefully, eventually, he thinks. But they have the opportunity to provide the defense to everyone who asks them and to help establish the gospel on the outside of prison. And so he's thankful for them. 
And in verse 8 he says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You want to know something really weird? (laughs) In the original language it says this, I yearn for you in the intestines of Christ Jesus. That's really weird, isn't it? (laughs) The old King James Version translates it, I I yearn for you with the bowels of Christ Jesus. That doesn't really help us much either, does it? In that ancient mindset, the bowels or the, the intestines were just the deep part inside you. We would say, when you feel it in your gut, that's what they're talking about there. And so I think you could put it something like this. The love that Jesus feels for you in his gut, I feel that for you all too. And he calls God as his witness that what I'm saying is true. He's not, he's not just saying, you know, I'm just not trying to you know, blow sunshine into your world. I'm not just flattering you. I really feel it deep in my guts. The same passion, the same affection that Jesus feels for you, I feel that for you as well. So let's just pause here in our study and just think of a few points of application as we think to apply. How how does this ancient letter speak to us this day? And Here's the first point of application. Let's live into the reality that the fellowship of the gospel establishes bonds of affection among believers. When the gospel begins to work in a community, that salvation that God begins, one of the effects it has is it, it forms bonds. It forms affections for one another. Just think of what we just saw Paul say. Every time I think of you, I pray with joy. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. This partnership is a partnership, but it goes so much deeper than that. And so the question I want to ask us as we reflect on these words is how might the gospel work in us that same kind of affection for one another. Paul says that he's, he's praying and giving thanks, and next week we're going to look at the content of his prayer, but here's just a sneak peek. He said, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. The love that you all have that's working its way out in your life because of the gospel of Jesus, I'm praying that that love will abound more and more. I'm reminded of what he said to the Thessalonians just down the road. Now concerning brotherly love, You have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. As I reflect on the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's great love for this world, that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life, as that that truth begins to work in them, They begin to be for one another in incredibly realistic and tangible ways. They're growing in love and affection for one another. And so here's the question. What if God works something in us which is pleasing in his sight, namely a deep love and an abiding affection for one another? I know many of you have Christians who go to other churches and and maybe you're part of studies in other parts of the city, and that's fine. But I'm asking about us here at Mercy Hill Church. What if God were to so work in us that which is pleasing in his sight, that he actually works a deep love and an abiding affection here with one another? What what would change about Mercy Hill? What would need to change for that to happen? Some of you are experiencing that, and I'm thankful for that. 
But I want to see us abound more and more in this. We'll unpack that more as we go. But here's a, here's a key point. Part of finding joy right where you are is living into this kind of community with other followers of Jesus. You're designed to experience deep communion with one another. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been created and recreated in Christ to experience deep communion with other followers of Jesus. And so part of what the gospel does is it creates this community of Jesus that begins to love like Jesus loves, that begins to see one another as people, my brothers and my sisters in Christ. When we're apart from one another and we think of one another, we, we yearn with the affection of Christ Jesus for one another. Could God work that in us? That's the first point of application. Let us live into the reality that the fellowship of the gospel establishes bonds of affections among believers. This can't just be an intellectual nod that we give. This is a reality that we must live into. Here's a second point of application and final one. Let's embody the reality that the fellowship of the gospel establishes partnerships that promote the gospel of Christ to this world. There are a number of different ways that you and I can be involved in promoting the gospel of Christ, or as Paul says, in the defense and the establishment of the gospel. Sometimes people think, well, I'm not, I'm not a good speaker, John. You, you get paid to do that. And, well, that might be the case. But you don't have to do what I'm doing. There are a number of different ways. There's this wonderful book by John Dixon, The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission. I commend it to you. But he says in this, the best kept secret of Christian mission is that the Bible lists a whole range of activities that promise Christ to the world and draw others to him. And he lists, for example, prayer. Being able to pray for this world, for those who are lost far from Christ, for financial partnerships, like the Philippians and, and Paul had entered into together. I know some of you support various ministries in this city. That's what they're talking about. How about adorning the gospel? What does that mean? By the way that we live. We make the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive to others. My friends, I don't have to convince you. We're living in a time where Christians are, are not doing that. It's more like vandalizing the gospel by the way that we live. But when we adorn the gospel, when people look at you and say, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily believe what you do and you know, my sexual ethics and whatnot are different than you, but you know what? I'm glad you're my friend. I'm, I'm glad that you're my neighbor. I'm glad that, that we work together. Because you make things better around here. Just daily conversation, we can promote the gospel. Think of creative ways in which we can talk about the things that matter the most. Answering questions when people ask us about what we believe. And of course, in our public worship, when we gather together, it itself is a witness. I can't tell you over the, the last few years that the number of people who have checked off on the back of the box, I'm, I'm just exploring the Christian faith right now. I'm not a believer, but I'm here. I want to learn. Sunday mornings is actually one of our best opportunities to bear witness to Christ. Not just to come hear a sermon, hear some good songs, but in the way we are with one another, and the interest we show to one another, and the kindness that we extend to those who come through our doors. This in many ways is ground zero of the mission for us. Sometimes I hear this sentiment, Pastor, let's go big or go home. Let's run out Kyle Field and bring in a great speaker and invite the whole city out. I'm not necessarily opposed to that. But sometimes I'll say, well, let's, let's first have a conversation of a little bit smaller. Let's just talk about the people in your life and the relationships that you have and, and maybe some creative ways we can pray for them and 
you can ask questions about what they think and what they believe. And oftentimes people are like, I don't really have time for that. Let's just go big and go home. Let me tell you, my friends, in that ancient city of Philippi, this Roman colony, Christians didn't really have the luxury of going big or going home. They couldn't rent out the Colosseum in their city, tell people that Caesar's not the Lord and Savior of the world. Jesus is. They didn't have that option. But they could do things like this. They could pray for their neighbors. They could enter into financial partnerships and and think of creative ways to, to bless the city and bear witness to the gospel. They could adorn the gospel by the way they lived. Their daily conversation as they worked and lived in their neighborhood, answering questions, public worship together. I want you to ask yourself the question, what would it look like for me to engage the mission of Jesus? What would it look like for me to be in the fellowship of the gospel, to be intentional in upping my game so I'm, so I'm more intentional in seeking to spread the gospel? Well, it would look just like this. <laughs> the things we've been talking about. These are great ways that we can grow in faithfulness and living out the gospel. So I encourage you, my friends, open yourselves to new possibilities of being used by Jesus to advance his mission because, as has been said, God doesn't ask about our ability or our inability. He could really care less about that. But all he wants is your availability, saying, Lord, use my ransom life in any way you choose. So part of finding joy right where you are is living for this mission of promoting the gospel of Jesus, living into the community of Jesus and promoting the gospel of Jesus. You see, my friends, how the gospel of Jesus creates this community of Jesus that doesn't just exist for themselves, but for the mission of Jesus. That's what Paul is getting at here in this book of Philippians, and that's why he's thrilled that these people have entered into a partnership with him in the gospel, and it fills him with joy. My friends, what if we began to see ourselves as a fellowship of the gospel, as a partnership in the gospel of Christ? What would change? What would need to change? How can we stretch ourselves and help ourselves grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we are willing to risk having some of those conversations that might lead to some really good things? That's something for us to think about. So my friends here at Mercy Hill Church, may the Lord work in you an affectionate love and joy in one another so that the grace of the gospel of Jesus may abound to more and more people.